Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marty Plum, and I am your host of a Pen and a Napkin podcast, a weekly coaching clinic that you can carry around with you in your pocket. Welcome to episode number 77, and I am really happy to have on the new girls basketball coach at Mount Vernon High School, fellow podcaster, uh, got his fingers uh, into about everything, including one of my greatest passions in life. Uh, but I'm going to hold off on that one, Coach. It's it's all about the anticipation with that one there. I'm going to leave you wondering as to what that is. All right, is that all right with you? <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Nate Sanderson, the new head girls basketball coach at Mount Vernon High School uh, in Iowa. Before we talk to Coach, though, we of course want to thank our founding sponsor, Cosac Chiropractic, located at 14450 Eagle Run Drive here in Omaha. Coaches, if you have an athlete who is struggling with balanced neck or spinal issues, have them go see Cosac Chiropractic. Give them a call at 402-964-0300. Just be sure to let them know that you heard about Cosac Chiropractic from a pen and a napkin. Follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. We try to put out daily coaching tidbits on the Twitter handle, so be sure to follow us there. Obviously, you're on SoundCloud or iTunes, so download, rate, and review. Give us five stars so we can continue to work, get the word out and gain momentum in the ratings so that we can help coaches build and educate themselves as they hone their craft. And if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Coach Sanderson, how are you on this fine Sunday morning? I'm doing great. Good. Good to hear. Got the birthday party going on later today. Uh, just uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, just ready to dive into it here. Let's get after it. How about it? All right. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Um, for the folks that don't know a lot about you, I kind of uh, usually start uh, with this direction. Uh, just kind of tell folks about your basketball journey, where you came from, uh, how you ended up at, at Mount Vernon. And uh, yeah, just, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I'm originally from uh, Eastern Iowa and um, grew up as a City High graduate, went to the University of Northern Iowa, got a social studies education degree, so I've got that in common too. And and um, when I got my first job, um, I knew I wanted to get into coaching. Uh, I didn't have a lot of playing background. I actually didn't play in high school. Um, my career ended on the, the C team at Southeast Junior High in eighth grade, and so didn't have a lot of uh, organized experience beyond that, although I played a lot of, you know, pick up ball and stuff at the rack and that kind of thing, but um, so my first teaching job was at Meliza Muscatine, which is kind of down in Southeast Iowa, and originally I was contracted to be the eighth grade girls basketball coach, and right before the start of that basketball season, the JV coach, and I flip-flopped contracts um, because she had been the varsity volleyball coach and had a couple young kids at home, and wanted, you know, less time commitment for that winter. And so we traded jobs and, and uh, so I started that first high school season at the, the JV assistant coach or the JV coach. And um, in January of that year, the head coach resigned. And so I became the interim coach um, at 24, 25 years old with no playing experience and no coaching experience and uh, finished off that season. Um, I think we were 0-19 that year and I, I was the fifth coach in four years. So it was a, uh, not a good situation uh, to start your coaching career in. But uh, anyway, I convinced the AD to um, let me keep the job and give it a whirl. And so we just <laughs> That must have been one heck of a sell job, Coach. I, I didn't win a game, but you need me. You'd need me here. Well, here's how that happened. Uh, the AD came into my classroom and he said, Nate, I think we're, we're going to go in a different direction. 
direction. We'd love to keep you on board. We really appreciate everything that you did, you know, stepping into a tough situation. Uh-huh. Think you're great with the kids, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Dwayne, here, here's the thing. Like, I understand you, you want somebody with more X's and O's and more experience, but what, what the program really needs is they need, you know, they need it, number one, to feel like family. They need it to mean something to be out for basketball. Yep. And they need somebody that's going to care more about kids than they do themselves. Absolutely. And after I kind of finished my speech, he said, you know what? F it. I'm going to tell him you're the man for the job. And he went out the door and walked out of the superintendent's office and said, Nate's our guy. And I had a contract in my box by the end of the week. So that's how that conversation went. But but that's but that's so true. Sometimes, you know, uh, we get so caught up in, in the offense or the system or this and that, that, that ultimately, if, if you're not getting kids out and you're not getting kids to play hard for you and that type of thing, all that other crap doesn't matter. Yeah, for sure. That definitely, I think, as you get older, becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of what I spend my time on anyway. Um, you know, because the human element is, is so much more important on so many different levels. But yeah. yeah, so that's kind of where we started there. And um, I spent seven years as the head coach there. And like I said, when we started, I think the school was in the middle of a 33-game losing streak and probably was one of the worst jobs in the state. I didn't know that at the time, but <laughs> I don't know if I could imagine a worse situation to walk into, but by the time we were done there, we had set the school record for wins three years in a row and and uh, kind of turned it around there. So um, after my time at, at L&M, my wife and I relocated up to the Cedar Rapids area, and I started coaching at Springville, which is a smaller 1A school just outside of Cedar Rapids there, and uh, spent seven years there. Um, not quite the same desolate situation when we started, but a little bit of a rebuild. They had won a, a two-time. Uh, State championship in 2007. Uh, they were runner-up in 2008, and then they graduated everybody, like a senior class of 10 players, mm-hmm. uh, which at the 1A, you know, 1A level is like your whole team. Yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely. So, absolutely. So we were, you know, just starting to build there, and right around 500 my first four years, and then had a really good freshman class come in that uh, ended up, you know, we ended up being state runner-up their freshman year, and then won the next two state titles. Um, and then the year after that, I, I took the job at Linmar, which is one of the largest schools in the state, not far from our house. Um, and that senior class, or that class in Springville, ended up winning a, a third straight state title with one of my assistants as the head coach. So pretty good run there uh, for sure to be part of. So um, went from the small school to the large school, spent two and a half years at Linmar. Um, and again, started kind of with a rebuild. Um, we had a number of Division One athletes my first year that decided not to play couple six two volleyball players that didn't go out and a, a division one basketball player that transferred to play with her AAU buddies and so what looked like we'd be in a really competitive situation in year one turned into a, a total rebuild yeah. <laughs> again. So I think we were three and nineteen my first year. Um and then just you know, again, just through hard work and continuing to push forward and that sort of thing. And we got to five hundred, beat a couple ranked teams my second year. Um and then my third year didn't make it through the season. Um, with the, the victim of a, a parent revolt or rebellion. And uh, so, anyway, my season got cut short, and we can get into more of that if you want to a little bit later. But yep. uh, so after that, I, I last season spent a year as an assistant coach for one of my friends in the area at North Lynn, which is a 2A school, uh, about a half hour north of where we live. Um, and that was a really fun situation. They had won the state title the year before. And kind of a similar thing as Springville graduated, you know, four senior starters and we're kind of starting over with a really young team. So uh, a lot of teaching, a lot of trying to figure out who's going to fit where. And we ended up going on a pretty good run and, and ended the season at the state tournament last year. 
Um, and so really thought I was going to stay there for a while. Um, so coaching with some really good friends that, uh, a good fit for our family, really enjoyed it. Um, but this Mount Vernon position came open, which is like nine miles south of our house. And, um, really I think is going to be a great fit for us. And so, um, applied for that job and uh, just took it about three weeks ago. And so we're, uh, we're off and running with one, a new position again, uh, this summer. Yeah. Well, let's let's kind of go through it step by step here, because I I think you've had a a really fascinating run. You've 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 seen about everything that a coach can see within a within a coaching career, um, the highs, the lows, and everything else in between. Uh, l- let's start with uh, the the Muscatine gig, and and you kind of went into that. Uh, what you know, you you said it was it was probably one of the toughest jobs in the state, and yet you turned it around to where. It was a very respectable situation after six or seven years. What do you think, or how, as you as you dove into it, what were the keys? And you and you talked a little bit about family and and making the kids feel wanted and and so forth and so on. But what were other things that you were looking at that that you continued to build that thing brick, brick by brick by brick to where by the time you left there. Uh, it was a very, very respectable situation, uh, and and whoever took it over from you was was going to be in a much better spot than than the situation that you inherited. Yeah, well, I think you know culturally, um, as I said, we've kind of touched on a couple things, but just being more intentional about building not just relationships with players. I mean, obviously, that's really important from a coach to player perspective, but um, you know, also just doing some of those culture building things, allowing the players to build better relationships with each other. Um, you know, that's something that hadn't been done there before. And, and we got a lot of mileage out of that. Um, there wasn't much of anything being done in the off season. So, I mean, just the simple things of starting to do open gym twice a week and going to a couple team camps and doing open gym in the fall and, you know, having some stuff before the start of the basketball season. Um, there just wasn't a lot of that, you know? And so as we found over the years, as we played more basketball, we, tended to get better at basketball, you know. <laughs> Funny um, how that works. Yeah, so, I mean, some simple things, you know, as far as that goes. Um, and I think, again, my story's a little bit interesting, I guess, because I, I don't have a tree. You know, I don't come from playing for a coach that did it this way. And so, you know, we kind of started with what what that varsity coach was doing in my very first year, but quickly we just sort of evolved from there. Um, I think during my time at Eliza Muscatine, um, I worked at Point Guard College Camp a couple of summers and took a lot away from that in terms of how we taught the game and how we uh, organized practices and, you know, language and things like that that were helpful to, um, you know, just to align, I guess, even within the high school program between JV and varsity and, and that sort of thing. But ultimately, I mean, we had really athletic kids start to come through that like basketball, you know, and I think that's one thing that's been consistent throughout my career is, um, I mean, I'm obviously pretty passionate about the game and and um i think that starts to wear off on our teams and and on our individual players you know that they really develop a love for the game and when you have that you know and you have players that like being around each other and and they respect you as a coach and um you know they're putting time in you're going to get better you know mm-hmm. yeah um I, I think that's that's such an underrated aspect of just developing that passion 
within your players. What are some things that you've done to try and take those good athletes that could go in a lot of different directions? Obviously, uh, there's more opportunity for kids to do things athletically than there ever has been. So how do you uh, develop that passion for basketball as opposed to, and, and it's in, you're, you're not trying to say, hey, I don't want you to play volleyball, I don't want you to play softball, I don't want you to play chess or checkers or anything like that, but hey, this basketball thing is pretty cool to do. Uh, I, I, you know, I think you should, you know, I, I think this would be a really cool thing and I think you've got a, a knack for this. How, how do you sell that to kids? How do you get kids excited to do that? Well, let me answer that in two ways. I think from a broad perspective, you know, when you're dealing with multi-sport athletes and multi-activity students, you know, that are busier and busier every year, right, with a lot of things going on in their lives. Um, You know, I look at our Mount Vernon situation. Softball is very, very successful, and a majority of our kids play softball in the summer. A lot of kids play volleyball, and they're very successful, you know, and so what are we trying to do to create a niche for basketball? I think the first thing is we're trying to create something that's unique and that's not at the expense of anybody else. I don't want to be successful at the expense of volleyball or softball or soccer or anything else. But what can we build into basketball that is going to be different than what they'll experience in another sport or in a club sport or in another activity? And, you know, we've been really good about our culture. Um, You know, I think the, the biggest thing at the core of what we've tried to build is that You know, when you come to basketball, you're coming to a place where not only do you feel like, hopefully, if we've done it right, you feel like you belong, but you can feel like you can be who you want to be, and you don't have to pretend to be someone else to make the coach happy or to make your teammates accept you or whatever. So, as an example, you know, sometimes, and I don't want to pick on volleyball here, but, you know, in volleyball, there's lots of celebrations and high fives and, you know, between points and on the bench, they've got dances and rituals (laughs) and things like that. And those are great. Kids love doing those things, right? Yep. But there are some kids whose personality, like, they could do without that, you know? And yep. so in basketball, we just give them some freedom. Like, if you don't want to be the rah-rah person, that's fine. You know, you still have to encourage your teammates, but you can find a way to do that that fits you better, you know? And then we have conversations with them about that. You know, like, what does that look like for you to, to impact your teammate or to pick them up when they make a mistake? And, and so it allows them, I think, to explore a little bit of who they are in a context where they're still meeting a need that, that provides for the collective, you know, that mm-hmm. still benefits the team. Um, and so, you know, that maybe is a little deeper psychological answer, but I think when you, you know, you're thinking about the love of the game, you know, when we play the game the right way, um, and I think, you know, particularly at Springville where we really formed an identity, a playing style that we just moved the basketball. I mean, we really passed it well. Um, you know, we had, I think, three years in a row where all of our starters had over 50 assists and, you know, we just moved it really well. Um, when you start to see that, that beauty in the game, like the more that you celebrate that and the more that you acknowledge that and the more that you see it in practice and you pull it out of film and you put it on your social media and, you know, you start to sort of build, again, it's kind of this uniqueness. We play a little bit differently. We definitely practice differently than, than most other teams. Um, as kids start to see that and then they start to feel what is it like to share the ball and have somebody find you and you find somebody else and participate or contribute to somebody else's success, you just keep leveraging those things, right? Mm-hmm. And I think when kids see how excited I get when we start to play that way, you know, it, it becomes a little bit contagious that way too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, speaking of Linville, uh, you know, you go there, um, 
you 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 make a a great run at the end there three state three straight state championship games uh were the, was that uh you were playing Newell Fonda in those in those title games weren't you uh we played Newell on my first one in 2015 um and lost that was Dick's first state championship and then we beat them in the semifinals the next year um and then um my first year out, uh, when my assistant had taken over, they beat Mofan in the, in the championship game for the, okay. that senior class of sport. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Championship appearance there. Cause Dick, Dick and I had, you know, when we would talk about it, you know, he would say, you know, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about this, this school on the other side of the state that we feel like we're going to match up with it. I, I forgot to tell you that, that Dick and I grew up together, uh, up in Sheldon and graduated together. So multiple, uh, multiple appearances on a pen and a napkin podcast by Dick Jungers. So, uh-huh, uh-huh. uh, so, uh, sorry, Dick, I d- didn't mean to let the secrets out of the bag of our, one of our many private conversations. So if you're listening to this one, coach Jungers, I apologize, but, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you, you really got it going there. What uh, other than the obvious stuff, uh, better players, better athletes, whatever it may be, uh, what kind of separated that team? What what about that group of kids took things to the next level and got you in that situation where you had the opportunity to make that big run over three or four years at Linville Sully? Yeah, well, we were at Springville, and um, you know, one of the things that we did when I started there was really tried to invest more into the youth program, which is something that I I hadn't done at the Wise Muscatine for a variety of reasons. We had enough to worry about at the varsity level for one, but it was yeah. um, it was something that I wanted to, to do better. You know, I knew at my next job, and so um, I think a combination of you know investing more time in that that class that came up that was really good. You know, that became kind of the core of of those state tournament teams, they had been in our system, you know, since sixth grade where, uh, you know, I was coaching them some of the time in a fall league and in a spring league, or if they go and travel and I'd happen to go and watch, um, you know, the dad of one of those players is just probably my closest friend in Springville. And he's like, well, yeah, just come and sit with us on the bench and coach him, you know? So I would, uh, coach them quite a bit, you know, um, in the off season there. And so when they, would come to a high school open gym or when they started their high school careers, the language is all the same. You know, a lot of the drills they already understood, the offense they were already running, at least at an elementary level. Yep. So they could get the spacing right and not screw it up for other people, you know, even if we were running, you know, some more, some more layers on top of what they already knew. So they were really able to function right away. And then, you know, again, there's just a lot of talent. We had three kids that were 5'11 or bigger in that class and, um, you know, so when you start to plug that into a system that has some consistency and obviously is, is effective when it's run well, um, you know, you have a chance for things to really take off. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I, I, yeah, I meant Springville and I said Linville Sully for some reason. I apologize. That's my fault. So, uh, um, all right. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, how, how integral is that, you know, especially in a smaller school to have that feeder system up and going and have that common language and and common uh execution style and the drill sets and that type of thing uh how how big of a difference did that make for you guys well it helps a lot you know and it's interesting like starting now at, at, at mount vernon where there hasn't been a youth system at all um and so that's one of the things that we'll be you know working to start to build again but when you don't have that, you know, if you were to walk into a, one of our open gyms this week at Mount Vernon, you would see 
maybe 20 kids in the gym and probably 18 different shooting styles. Mm-hmm. You know, their feet would be doing different things on the catch and to start their dribbles and around the basket. And, and so even, I mean, the system is one thing. It's great to have an understanding of space and how you want to play and, you know, some of that basic stuff in terms of particularly your offense and your defense. But even the fundamentals of understanding uh, a consistency of language and, you know, some consistent principles with your shooting mechanics and even the type of passes and what we want to do with that, you know, it just, it just makes everything easier when there's a, a base knowledge as much as a base skill set um, for you to work with when they get there. You know, and I, I think about what we're going to teach in year one at, at Mount Vernon. It's a lot of things that we would have taught in fifth and sixth grade at Springville. Yep. But we have to start there. You know, you have to build a scaffold and you have to build a background knowledge to be able to start growing from there. So the first day we'll talk about how to hold the ball and how to pivot and how to pivot out of pressure, and, you know, and just a lot of very, very fundamental, basic things, um, which some kids have and some kids don't, but everybody has to have it and has to call it the same thing so that we can start to accelerate our learning as we build a, you know, a common vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I can, I can definitely re- relate to that. That's kind of what I'm going through in my new position where, you know, that's, that's exactly what we're trying to do in ours. And, and, because of COVID, we didn't have much of a chance to do that last year. We could barely work with the high school kids, let alone the junior high and the elementary kids. So even though it's my second year there, I really feel like this is our first real full year of working with our youth kids. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about with that, Coach. And, and you know, how, how difficult is that sometimes to uh, – you know, do, 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 you, do you have a calendar? Do you have a mindset, okay, I want to have – X amount of this type of habit broken by this time period or uh, that type of thing? Or is it just, hey, we're just going to keep cranking away at it one day at a time and eventually we'll get there? Well, I think after doing it for 20 years, you know, you have a pretty good idea of the um, progression of how things should be learned. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there isn't really a timetable because if they don't learn, you know, the first five skills, if the next five build off of those, it doesn't, I can't just accelerate that and jump to number seven if we yep. don't know how to do number three, you know? So really it's just, it's just really at the pace of as the kids absorb it and start to understand it. And, um, you know, and that's kind of where we were at when we started at Springfield too. Everything was really basic and, and, you know, the, just, as I said, the difference was in year one, we were teaching those things at the high school level and by year five or six, um, you know, I just remember thinking like, man, we can start so much farther ahead mm-hmm. because we don't have to go back and teach these things that they've learned in, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. So I think the bigger challenge, and I don't know if you want to dive into youth stuff at all, you know, anymore here, but it's just the time factor, you know, like, I mean, I've got a four-year-old and a six-year-old at home and, and I can't coach, you know, yeah. all year round or three nights a week for the fall and the spring, you know, and that sort of thing. So, like, how do you start to to build out a structure for that can be, I think, the bigger challenge sometimes, even more so than aligning the curriculum and the things that you wanted to learn, you know, as they go down. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Coaches, there are numerous resources in the coaching universe to help make coaches better. Podcasts, websites, videos, and everything in between. But if you're a coach looking for a resource that addresses all the skills necessary to be successful both on and off the floor, look no further than a pen and a napkin university. A pen and a napkin university is a series of courses designed to help any coach at any level to hone their craft in the offseason. A pen and a napkin university features four separate courses starting the first week of July, 
to help develop your coaching skills. The four core courses are personal growth and development, building your X's and O's philosophy, building your program, and fundamentals and drill work. Each course is seven weeks long with a new topic each week to dive into. The best thing about Penn and Napkin University is its flexibility. You can sign up for a weekly topic, an entire course, or the entire program. It's whatever fits your schedule and your budget. For more information, send us an email at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. So, Coach, you go from this, this highest of highs, a, a terrific run at Springville, and then you make the jump to, to Linmar, and you kind of touched on it when you were talking about your background. Uh, you know, it's and it's it's a logical jump. You, you, you want to challenge yourself. I'm sure that was probably part of your motivation, you know, and whatever your motivations were to move on, those are your motivations. Uh, but you you make this jump, uh, you're feeling really good about it, you feel like you're coming into a really good situation, and then the proverbial poop hits the fan, and some things happen, Some a lot of it sounds like it was out of your control, and, and, and you know, it sounds like, you know, the two of the three years were a, a pretty tough go of it. Um, what you know, how did that kind of affect you in the sense of uh, your, your confidence or did you doubt yourself a little bit? Uh, because I know that's what happens to a lot of us. I mean, uh, every time we go out and we play a game, uh, half the people walking out of the gym are really happy, and but the other half are, are not nearly as happy. And, and, that, and that can wear on you. And, 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 it's, and it's very difficult. And, and I know uh, when I set out for my two years, uh, I, I told a couple of my friends, "Boy, I've slept really, really well for two years. Uh, I, I haven't, I haven't looked up at the at my ceiling for for two whole years now. It's been great. Uh, so that that stress and bringing it home and and kind of that type of thing. Uh, how did that kind of uh, you know did that experience change you a little bit? Did you look at things differently? What what was that like for you? Yeah, I think anytime, you know, you come from a situation where you've had success on the scoreboard um, and then you go into a situation where your approach probably hasn't changed a lot. And, you know, I felt a lot of confidence going into Lamar in terms of our system and how we did things and, you know, what we were building on and that, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, in year one there, we we didn't have a great a great outcome, you know, our record wasn't great and we struggled to compete, you know, although we did get better as the year went on, but we had a pretty strong culture. Mm-hmm. We had a couple of seniors that, um, you know, had a lot of drama and conflict on past teams and, uh, and we really didn't have a lot of issues in that first year between teammates and they yeah. really, really appreciated that. And I remember we had one kid that went on to play division one softball that was a senior that year. And at the end of the year, we were doing our interviews and stuff. And she said, you know, coach, I wouldn't trade one thing about this experience to win one more game. You know, and mm-hmm. I thought coming from one of the most competitive kids I've ever coached, that says a lot about the kind of experience that we were able to, you know, to create as a foundation. So that's hard to sell to the outside, you know, but on the inside, at least that part, you know, we felt pretty good about. But there was a lot of nice. I mean, we started that first year. I think we played four top five teams um, in my first five games. I think we had the number one most difficult schedule on BC Moore in all classes, you know, early in the year. And, uh, you know, got beat by 50 by City High. We put up the worst loss in rivalry Saturday history to Marion. And, you know, it was just one after another where we were way out of our league, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of where we were starting. And I remember, you know, for me, it wasn't sitting and staring at the ceiling. I would 
sit in my office and at Lindmar and just stare at the back of the door, you know, and just think, <laughs> what have we done? You know, what have we left? And, <clears throat> and we're here and, you know, it doesn't seem like any of this stuff works. And, and I just remember, you know, really in that first year, especially just, just, you know, this phrase keeps coming back to my mind. You're here for these kids. You know, it isn't necessarily about the scoreboard and the winning and losing, but, you know, there's some relationships with some kids that we built during that time that, I still have, you know, really strong relationships with today and kind of evolved into a, you know, more of a mentorship like type relationship. Right. And those things wouldn't have happened if we wouldn't have left, you know, with some of those kids. So, so, you know, sometimes I think you have to be rooted in your why, you know, in terms of what your purpose is in coaching. Um, because typically at most jobs, the scoreboard is going to change from year to year. <laughs> you know, you yeah. have some good years and bad years and, I think if you're rooted in what your purpose is, what you're using the game for, which hopefully is to affect the lives of kids in a positive way, um, you know, that, that can help to anchor you even when, you know, the storms are coming. So, Well, you know, when, when the storm hit and uh, you decided to step away uh, after, I want to ask two questions with this. After you had some time to think about it, and, and you had a reflection point, and I don't know if that was a week later, a month later, six months later, whenever it was. Um, did, you, did you feel like, yeah, the storm hit, and yeah, this and this and this happened, but doggone it, there's not a whole lot I would change? Or was it, you know, yeah, maybe I could or should have done this and this and this differently? You know, that's an interesting question, uh, because that's one that... It, that I think about a lot, or I did think about a lot. Uh-huh. You know, we, we live on a um, two or three acre plot of land out in the country, so it takes me about five hours to mow the lawn. And <laughs> probably for the first year after that situation, that's all I thought about. I just go back to the start of year three. You know, where did we go wrong? What should we have done differently? You know, how could we have changed the outcome of that? And I, I to me, and I'm, you know, in the coaching education business, and so I think that there's sort of, I felt the pressure of like, you're supposed to reflect on these failures in life and find these, you know, strands of gold and nuggets, you know, that are going to change you for the rest of your life. And you're going to come back and say, this was a pivotal moment of failure that made me who I am. Yep. And in all honesty, I just couldn't find it. And I hope that's not, you know, just, I can't see through my own arrogance, but as I would retrace the steps of what happened in that third year, I just don't know that there's a lot we could have done differently that would have changed the outcome. And, and you know, the biggest reason for that, and I'll give you an abbreviated story of kind of what happened, but we went into that third year, you know, my second year, we were 500. We brought everybody back except for one senior who um, was one of the best leaders that I've ever coached and certainly probably the best embodiment of what we wanted in our culture of any kid that we've ever had uh, at Linmar for sure. And so we lost that locker room influence, you know, and that, that senior was somebody that would fight for, not just funny for me in terms of what we were trying to do as a coach, but like she got it. Like she understood the purpose. She understood why we did what we did and believed in it, you know? And so, I mean, she stood up to her own parents when they were being overly critical of us. And it's like, no dad, you're wrong. This is why, you know? So we lost that voice and we lost that influence and we went into the year, you know, with some pretty good expectations and rightfully so, and just didn't shoot it well in the start of the season. I mean, our first seven games, I think we shot, 30, 31% from the field. And I don't care where you're playing. You know, it's hard to win when you're yep. only making three out of 10 shots. Yep. But everything else, we were better than the year before. I mean, we were giving up fewer points. 
causing more turnovers, turning it over less, getting the foul line more, rebounding better. I mean, you go down the line, every other metric was better. We just couldn't make shots. Mm-hmm. And so going into break, instead of being five and two or six and two, five and three, something like that, you know, we were two and six, I think. Um, and so related to that was we had really, especially in year three, we were trying to build in this idea that, you know, everything is going to be earned. And so we had, um, you know, upperclassmen that weren't playing as much as they thought or expected to, or that their parents thought that they should, or their AAU coaches said that they should, or whatever it might be. And so, you know, you can make those playing time decisions and say it's going to be based on, you know, whatever your performance metrics are, whatever your rationale is. But if you can't justify it by winning, you're really vulnerable, you know, especially in an environment like that. And so, you know, we had some meetings over Christmas break that year and, and talked with some of the players and, you know, players had vented a lot to the AD. And so she shared some of those things with us. And so we came out of break and we just thought, you know, if all that matters here is winning and losing, because that's what everything was couched in, you know, is that we're not winning. So none of this stuff is working. Uh, let's just do whatever we can to win games. And so I remember my assistant and I sort of went into playoff mode where we're just grinding, you know, watching the film and really being detailed and the pregame and in the scout and that kind of thing. And our schedule, we hit, you know, the middle third was a lot more difficult than the early third. So, you know, we're playing Iowa City West twice. We're at number one City High. We've got number five Cedar Falls. And we're competitive in all those games. In fact, and we went down to City High, Nobody had been within 30 points of them going into the fourth quarter. We were up one going into the fourth, up one five minutes to go, and then turn it over twice. They hit two threes, and we just couldn't get back, you know, into sure. it in the last couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. So we were better. You know, we were clearly better. Um, but we also said, look, if winning is all that matters, then we're going to tighten up the rotation even a little bit more and play our best player, you know. And when you look at the metrics, our spring five was, eight points better than when any substitute was in the game, you know, yeah. and so yeah. they played a lot, right? And so at any rate, we, you know, get down the line and, and um, remember we had, we had beaten Iowa City Liberty on a Tuesday night and Wednesday I got an email to come into the AD's office and just say, you know, to talk or whatever. Uh, on the next day on Thursday, went in and, you know, she shut the door and she said, Nate, I know we were going to try to make it to the end of the year and then kind of reevaluate because we had talked about you know, maybe this isn't the best fit. I mean, just for what I believe in and what I want the program to be about and what the players wanted and what the parents wanted. And it, it may not have been the best fit. In retrospect, I'm sure there wasn't, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but she said, I don't think we're going to make it. And I think for the good of the program and probably for yourself, I need you to step down for personal reasons. And so, you know, we talk a little bit more about it. And, and honestly, looking back, she's probably right. Like, I don't know how much it would have benefited Linmar or us to keep swimming upstream in front of, you know, the grat or the growing amount of emails and phone calls to the AD and people complaining about, you know, seniors not getting a chance and blah, 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 you know. And so, um, so when you look back at it, I mean, I, I guess the easiest way to maybe avoid it would have been just to play seniors because they were seniors. That would have staved off some of that, but. At the end, we wouldn't have won any more games, I'm sure, if we would have done that. Um, and so I don't know how much of a difference that would have made. But for me, you know, and again, as I said, I'm, I'm in this industry, right? And one of the things that we work with our coaches on is you need to know what you're willing to be fired for. Yeah. And I was willing to be fired for making kids earn it, you know. And if that's what it meant that it wasn't going to work out, then I would rather, um, you know, walk away or be asked to walk away and know that I didn't, 
violate some of those <laughs> values that were most central to who I am as a coach. And so, so that's a long-winded answer, I guess, to say I'm not really sure yeah. that there was one thing that we could have done differently that would have changed the outcome there. I mean, other than shoot the ball better at the beginning of the season, that would have made it a little bit easier. But I don't know if it would have ended any differently at some point in my life there, you know? Yeah. I, I, I wrote down three things as you were talking. Um, and, 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 you know, we'll just go with this wherever it goes. Um, I think the two hardest things for any coach to control, and, and you do all that you can to control these things, Nate, and you and I both have done this for 20-plus years, but the two hardest things for a coach to control are the locker room and the dinner table. And, and, and sometimes, uh, especially the dinner table, can be the biggest enemy that, that and I don't want to say enemy, that's a harsh word, uh, that, that can be a, 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 a pretty big opponent to fight um, as, as you're going through things. So you were talking about the one gal who said, hey, you know, she was telling her parents, no, this is why we're doing this, so forth and so on. And that's, that's golden. I mean, that's, those are the type of kids that you, that you win with, you know, type of a deal. Um, but then you're talking about the other thing was uh, you were talking about, you know, can, can I live with this or what can I be? I, I always kind of phrase that as, hey, can I look at myself in the mirror and be okay with the decisions I've made and, and that type of thing? And, and, and I know, like for myself, I, I coached at a, a, a pretty affluent private school that was, uh, you know, very, very successful here in Nebraska. And, and there are those decisions that you have to make that, you know, you could go down the path of, of least resistance and make some simpler decisions based on the political environment or whatever it may be. Uh, but can, but, but, but does that sit well with you? Does that, does that sit right with you? And those are ultimately decisions that all coaches have to make. And, and I think it's an important, uh, line in the sand that you have to, to make within your own line, within your own mind that this is what I stand for. This is who I am. This is who we're going to be. And I can't do this job any other way. And I think it's really hard for any coach to to compromise on those base core uh, principles and still try to be successful. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would agree with both of those. You know, I think one of the things that we've tried to do with parents is to be very, very transparent about what is our purpose. You know, what is our mission in coaching? What is what are we trying to accomplish? with a player going through our program and it's not winning and losing, you know, it, it, and we're really clear about that. Like we work really hard to win games. It's our objective. It's our goal, but it's not our purpose. And if, and if you make me choose one or the other, you know, I'm always going to choose impact over outcome. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. Right. And I, you know, the second piece of that, um, you know, is just knowing yourself, as you said, and we just wrapped up on our, our podcast, a series on, um, developing a program identity, you know, we brought on some other coaches and the, the one thing that everybody came back to is you have to know yourself, right? What, what's important to you? Um, what's your purpose? What's your mission? Who are you? You know, those kind of things, uh, for exactly the reason that you talked about, you know, and when you get into a situation, whether it's at a, a place like Winmar or, or a private school somewhere, a public school, it doesn't matter. You know, ultimately you start from who you are, you aspire to who you want to be, 
And you hope you have enough support that when you go through the, the initial wave of resistance, whether that's from parents or players or, or whoever, that you come out on the other side and everybody that's left is in agreement and says, no, this is the direction that we want to go. You know, and I didn't have that opportunity at Linmar, fortunately, but, um, but if you can get to that place, you know, and be consistent with that, I think that's when a program can really start to take root. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you go through this tough, and, and here's the second uh, question that I had for you. You go through this really tough experience at Linmar. Uh, like you said, you spent a lot of time on the riding lawnmower. Uh, I spent a lot of time listening to podcasts in, in my year or two off, uh, and then decided to, to do one myself. Uh, but uh, when did you feel like it was right for you to to jump back in? What was the process for you uh, getting to the point where it's like, okay, I'm ready to take on uh, this position again and all the responsibilities that it brings. What was that process like for you as you uh, tried to come back from from a, a really tough deal for anybody to go through in, in any profession? It, ours just happens to be coaching. Well, I think for me, you know, when I left, it wasn't like I had no perspective that I was leaving coaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Coaching is so much of who I am. So, you know, for us, it was really a discernment process that first spring of, you know, how important is it to be a head coach? Because we had some opportunities where we we could have taken a couple of jobs that would have required us moving, you know, and with our family that, that there's a whole different dynamic there, you know, when my wife makes most of the money, all of our insurance is through her, you know, does it make sense for us to move for a $6,000 a year coaching job Mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic? (laughs) She wouldn't. You know, like th- that that becomes a lot more complicated, right? Yep. And so the thing that, that I really took away from that process, because my my buddy at North Lynn, where I ended up coaching last year as an assistant coach, you know, we had talked, because I kind of helped them during the state tournament um, that year, kind of in the shadows watching film and, you know, being at their practices and stuff. And, and uh, I said, you know, if nothing else works out, like, would you have any work for me next year that I could kind of hang out? And he's like, oh, we'd love to have you, but you need to go chase these other things down first, you know? And so we did. Um, and one of the things that I, I realized, because the question then became, you know, do I have to be a head coach? Like, what is it about coaching that really gets me going, you know, that is my passion? And I didn't really know how to answer that. Um, but through one of the interview processes, there was, uh, we went and visited the school and and in the, you know, the, the visit, they do the tour of the facilities and that sort of thing. And, and one of the players was on the tour. I saw on the itinerary before we went up there that there was going to be a player there. So I asked him, I said, you know, could I have a few minutes just to talk to the player a little bit? I'd just be curious to kind of get her perspective on the program and some of that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. so anyway, at the end of the visit, I was rebounding for this girl and just, you know, we spent probably 20 minutes just talking about the program and, you know, where she thought it was and what she would like to see improved and, you know, that kind of thing. And I just remember driving home, like, that's what I miss the most. I just miss talking to kids. Like I love the game and I love scouting and I love building practices and all that stuff. But more than anything else, I miss being around and talking to kids and I can do that as an assistant coach. And so for us, there was, there was some peace about that, that, you know, we could stay in the area and kind of figure out, you know, what would the things, what boxes would need to be checked for us to think about relocating if it came to that. And in the meantime, I could still scratch a lot of itches, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. being an assistant coach at North Lynn. So that that was really, I mean, that was pretty meaningful for me, I guess, to, to figure that out. 
Um, and as I said before, you know, Coach Wheatley let me do way more than a normal assistant coach. Um, I mean, I was, you know, doing one-on-ones with players. I was doing substitutions. I was planning practices or part of practices, you know, especially by the end of the year, contributing to the scouting report, doing the film every week. You know, there was, I mean, he let me do a lot of stuff. Um, which was great, you know, for, mm-hmm. for me and hopefully benefited the team as well. But um, at the end of that experience, you know, there's definitely part of me that was like, I need to at some point be a head coach again, if for no other reason than because I have all these ideas that I really want to try. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and I, you, yeah. Can't, you can't do it as an, as an assistant coach necessarily. Um, and so, you know, like I said, we were going to stay at Northland until the right opportunity came around or, or something else developed. And I think we were pretty content with that. And then all of a sudden this job opens up, you know, nine miles down the road and, and ends up being available to us. So you were talking about home and I'm going to be honest with you, coach. Now that I know this, you may have to put up some security cameras or something like that. Uh, because someday I'm just going to sneak onto your property and I'm going to just start playing some wiffle ball. Um, how did you come up with the idea for the wiffle ball field? Yeah, so when we started at the Wise and Muscatine, we, uh, when my wife and I got married, we bought this house, kind of a country house, you know, with about an acre and a half on it. And I come across a story of a guy uh, named Pat Murphy out in Vermont who had built a one-fourth scale model of Fenway Park on mm-hmm. his property and started hosting tournaments to raise money for charities. And over 10, 20 years, whatever it's been, I mean, he's raised over a million dollars for all these different charities. I thought, that's awesome, you know? And so at L&M down in Southeast Iowa, we had this old, like, 50 by 80 foot overgrown, like, foundation of something that used to be a machine shed or something like that. And so one summer, our, our FCA kids, we had left, led the FCA group down there for five or six years. We cleared it all off, and we painted some bases, and there was like an old fence and a couple of trees, and we started playing wiffle ball in the summer, just Sunday nights for fun, you know, with this yep. group of kids and some friends and whatever. And so anyway, that kind of evolved into hosting a couple tournaments during the year just with people in the area to raise money for our FCA group. And so when we relocated to Cedar Rapids, we had talked about trying to get back out in the country uh, again, and when we did, I thought, man, if we ever do this again, like I really want to do a wiffle ball field right and really see if we can, you know, we can raise some money. And so, anyway, we found this property outside of Springville when I, I got the job and I got a teaching job there too. So I was teaching for a couple of years and at Springville. And so we found this two and a half acre lot. It's, the house is right in the middle. There was kind of this gently rolling hill on the south side and then just a wide open area on the north side. And it was like, it was like the perfect setup. And so we moved out here the first summer. Um, I remember Mike Moran and I, we spent so many hours just hitting wiffle balls to figure out wind patterns and how far does the ball go and where <laughs> we put it. home plate. And, oh. and um, so we kind of oriented it into the, the, you know, the property or whatever and aligned the, the outfield walls. Our goal was we want to make it fair when there's no wind. So we've got a 12 foot monster in right field that's, you know, kind of like the green monster from Fenway. And we've got a shorter fence here. We've got some ivy growing, you know, and so we've we've taken a few characteristics of some different ballparks. And then over the last eight years, we've just kind of added one project after another in the summer. So we built a wall the first summer, hosted a tournament on Labor Day. The next summer we built a gazebo on this old foundation. And then we built uh, 
a platform behind the right field wall so you can go up the steps and lean over this, the, the big monster and kind of watch the game from there. And then in left field, we built a platform, and then we built a playground off of that for our kids to play on and swings and stuff like that. And then we built in right field, uh, extended that platform, and now we've got bench seating up top and below with a scoreboard that hangs up. And so anyway, it's just kind of been a labor of love. And over the last, I think, eight years, we've raised over $30,000 for charities. People just come out and use the field, and, and you know we've got four charities that we support, and we just ask them to write their check to one of those four and and so we don't take any money in from it at all we just make it available to people and then we host some some tournaments uh labor day is kind of our big event we do a two-day tournament with like 16 teams and Heidi comes out and caters and we've got corporate sponsors and and uh the whole deal so it's it's uh it's become a lot of fun and and then obviously you know for our family like we can just go on hit balls whenever we want to that that's maybe the best part of the whole thing so the, the the field of dreams is officially in Dyersville, Iowa, but for me, uh, my ultimate I love coaching basketball, uh, but if I could have been a professional wiffle ball player, that was my true calling. I truly believe that. And and, and, and as we started getting ready for day, I saw this. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Uh, this is like the coolest thing ever. Um, so. Uh, the next time and uh, that time over in the Cedar Rapids area, I might be knocking on your door and I might want to get some BP in. That would be great. Bring Tony Viss out and we, we can hit a bucket of balls. That'd be awesome. <laughs> that, that would be good. <laughs> that would be really good. So, uh, coaches, want to have an opportunity to have a hands-on mentor to help you hone your craft as a basketball coach? Look no further than teachhoops.com, a place where coaches go to get better. Coach Steve Collins shares his three decades of coaching knowledge with his subscribers through resources like podcasts, one-on-one mentoring sessions, and much more with teachhoops.com. Go to teachhoops.com backslash APAAN with subscriptions start at $34.99 a month. When you sign up, you get a 14-day free trial, so combine teachhoops.com with a pen and a napkin to help you make become the best coach that you can be. Coach, at this time... We transition here a little bit. We start with our Don Meyer quote of the day, the GOAT, Don Meyer. And uh, I'm going to throw a Don Meyer quote out here for you. And if you would like to comment on it, uh, feel free to do so. I know this is true in my coaching career uh, with today's quote. Uh, But today's Don Meyer quote of the day is, you build your program on the ideas of great coaches. And I know that I have spent a lot of time studying other great coaches, and I have taken a lot of stuff from other great coaches, and I've written down a bunch of stuff that you've talked about here today. Uh, Coach, who are some of your influences? Who are some of the folks that you've robbed and stealed from, uh, stolen from? That's why I teach history and not English. Uh, Who have you stolen from that that has helped make you the coach that you are today? Yeah, probably the biggest influences on me as a coach, I think one, I mentioned this before, is just my experience at Point Guard College. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been I've been really fortunate. Um, I worked a couple of camps when Dina Evans was still uh, on the road back in the mid-2000s. And since then, Mono Watts has kind of taken over leadership of, of PGC. And um, I've gotten to know Mono and, and TJ Rosine and Sam Allen really well. They've become really good friends. And um, so just kind of their curriculum um, was probably the first really significant leap forward in my coaching approach. Um, and then I would say, you know, over the last six or seven years, uh, Brian McCormick's work um, was really a, a game changer for me, reading the 21st century basketball practice, uh, just really changed how I thought about just about everything <laughs> that we did in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've 
devoured most of his books and gotten to know him fairly well over the years as well. So, um, you know, those two have been pretty significant. And honestly, I'm probably more influenced these days by books than I am by other coaches. So, um, you know, books like Inside Out Coaching by Joe Ehrman really is a great tool to start digging into why you coach um, and why you coach the way you do. Thinking about the influences that have kind of shaped who you are as a person and how that manifest itself in coaching is just a fascinating perspective, you know, to think about in terms of building your philosophy. Um, Daniel Coyle's work in the talent code and the culture code. Yep. Uh, those, those are two are good books ones. that are mandatory reading for my, my coaching staff, you know, when you start to think about how the brain works and how organizations work and how important those facilitating those connections between people um, can be as a predictor of success. And so, uh, those, those, you know, have been some of the most significant influences, I would say, over over my career. Great stuff. Great stuff. We do, a, I, I try to do a, a book club pod every week, Coach. And, you know, sometimes it's more successful than others in the sense of getting around to them. I've got a bunch of them that I read here the last few weeks. I promise, listeners, we've got more coming. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, we're, we're big on books on a pen and a napkin here. And I think that there's such a vital resource that, that you need to be reading all the time. If you're going to be a successful coach, that's that, I think that's a key to being a successful coach that in, in my opinion, that doesn't mean that you can't do it. You have to be yourself, but I think reading is so vital, uh, to, to help developing your philosophy. So I love it when we have coaches come on talking about other coaching books and things like that. So, um, Let's jump into, you talked about Brian McCormick, and one of the things you wanted to talk about was practice design, and you, you kind of touched on it with McCormick and 21st century basketball practice. Uh, you know, at this point, Coach, I, I kind of turn it over to my guests. I, I let them cook here a little bit, and you go through uh, your philosophy, and I'm just going to kind of listen and maybe add, add a few follow-up questions if I have something that pops up. So let's talk about your practice design, how you design things. Um, I, I think that's the base of, of any coach's philosophy. If you're going to start with anything, you've got to have a great practice, as Al McGuire would say. So, um, you know, coach, just, just let it rip here, and, and, and I'm going to tag along. And like I said, if I've got anything to follow up with or if I've got any questions, I'll add on here. Yeah, well, I appreciate you interjecting here, um, you know, as we go along. I guess what, when I think about practice design, you know, our practices look way, way different today than they did even six or seven years ago, um, just in terms of how we view even what a, a quote-unquote skill, you know, or a fundamental skill is. Um, and again, I think a lot of that stems from some of the things that I've read, but also it comes out of experience. Um, you know, we, around the same time that I had read McCormick's work, um, I remember we had a captain's meeting in 2014, and it was kind of the, the dog days of January. We weren't practicing very well. And so I called the captains in and I said, you know, what's going on? Like, we just don't seem to have a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And they kind of hemmed and hawed and they were like, well, coach, nobody's having any fun. And this was news to me because I was having a blast. You know, like I love building the scouting report and taking away things from other teams and how are we going to guard this person? And, you know, like I love doing that. And that's what we were doing in most of our practices at that point in the year. But it wasn't fun for them. And it was really the first time where I started thinking about player engagement and even player enjoyment um, as being, you know, an important factor in building our practices. You know, one of our people in our program, Kevin Orr, always says, I used to build practices for my enjoyment. Now I plan them for my players' enjoyment. And I just, that fundamental shift was really important for me. 
The other thing that happened, um, I mentioned before, you know, we were trying to build down into the youth levels at Springville, and one of the programs that we had kind of developed was based on some of the things we read in the talent code from um, Daniel Coyle, and we built out this shooting program we called Sniper School. And the, the gist of it was you'd start on a, a line from the basket out, let's say, to the right corner, and every four feet on the floor, there would be a mark. And so you would shoot 10 shots at four feet, and if you made six out of 10, or once you got to six, um, then you moved back to eight feet. And you'd shoot 10, and if you made six out of 10, you got to go to 12 feet and 16, and then out to the three-point line. And so we started doing this um, as a way for us to track their range. You know, theoretically, it was putting them at the edge of their ability. If they're out to 16 and they get four out of 10 and they move back to 12 and they get eight, you know, so like they, they kind of sit in that space, you know, where they're really developing outside of their comfort zone without getting so far away that their form was compromised. At least that was the theory. Yep. So we did this for six or seven years. We charted 120,000 shots. We had their 60% range and we took all this data. And I remember, you know, in 2015, we had a senior that had been doing it for five years at that point, And she was shooting when she got out to the three-point line, then we just let you stay out there and bombs away for a while. So she was shooting over the summer 54% from three. And we thought, wow, finally we're going to have, you know, a consistent threat on the outside and it's going to be great for our offense. And we go into the year and she shoots 29% in games. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you know, I thought, well, Rachel's the problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like she's not athletic enough or she, you know, just can't get her shot off quick enough in a game and, you know, whatever it might be. I just thought she was the aberration. So the following year, we have another senior that shoots 53%, 52% from three in the summer, and she shot 13% during the season. Oh, wow. And it was at that point that we started thinking, okay, we're doing this wrong. Because what we were doing is we were getting a lot better at sniper school, but it didn't transfer to the games because we weren't shooting like we shoot in games. Like mm-hmm. you never stand in one place in a game and shoot 10 shots in a row and see if you can make 10, right? So the only semi-game-like shot was the first one where we moved to a different spot and, you know, we caught it and shot it, right? Yep. So, at any rate, so those things really started me to thinking, how can we do this better, you know? And so, from that point on, we really started going down the road of kind of this game-based, you know, drills or game, game-based game uh, skill development and practice. And now, at this point, probably 90% of what we do in practice um, we're doing in some sort of game, whether it's you know, one-on-one or two-on-two, three-on-two, four-on-two plus two. You know, we have a million different variations sure. with lots of different constraints and rules. But we're trying to teach just about everything in the context of a game. And now in year one, there'll be a little different to that because we have to, as we said before, teach so much language and, you know, some basic understanding. But the goal is always to build, you know, those individual skills into a game as quickly as possible. So... Now when we design practice, you know, a couple things that we think about. Number one, players get better by doing. So, you know, when we go back and watch video of an open gym or of a practice, and I'm literally on the stopwatch and I'm trying to figure out how much time was I talking and how much time were players actually doing because they're only getting better when they do. Mm-hmm. So we are, you know, militant about trying to maximize repetitions. How do we maximize rotations? How do we get into the smallest groups possible to use all the baskets, as many balls as we need? How can we be as efficient as possible to create as many repetitions of whatever we're doing as possible for our kids? Um, so that's that's where, you know, again, small-sided games, if you can play 
three on three on four baskets, that's much better than playing five on five on two baskets, right? In yep. terms of the amount of touches and that sort of thing. The other thing that really guides the way that we plan practice is if it doesn't happen in a game, we don't do it. And so when I think about how I used to drill fundamentals, quote unquote, you know, it was a lot of stationary dribbling and then stationary shooting. And then, you know, we're playing catch and we're learning these different passes. But again, without defense, we're not doing it like it happens in a game. And so there's a ceiling on how much of that's actually going to transfer to competition. And so we don't do any of that stuff anymore. You know, we only, I shouldn't say we, we don't only do things that happen in the game, but we try to make everything as, as much as possible look like the game so that we're practicing what happens the most. And that's probably my third kind of philosophical key here is whatever happens most, we want to do that in a game. We want to do that most in practice. And it took me a long time to get to that, that point, I think, in terms of my own understanding. Yeah. So, for example, if I go back and look and say, okay, you know, what happened most? Uh, I'll give you an example from one of our second year of Linmar. We played Xavier in December. We lost by 20. We gave up 16 offensive rebounds. And a lot of times coaches would go back and they'd say, okay, we gave up 16 no boards, so we got to work on box outs and get tougher and we got to hit people and we got to pursue the ball. And, you know, that next practice might involve some football pads or some Tom Izzo drills or, yep, yep. or whatever, right? Yep. And what we did is, again, we look at the context first. So, yeah, we gave up 16-0 boards, but when you go back on huddle and you just, let me watch them right in a row, 16 in a row, and see what we see. And what we found is that on, like, 12 or 14 of those, we broke down on dribble penetration, which means that we were helping, and then our box-out assignments are all messed up anyway, right? So what was happening was more about one-on-one containing the dribble without help on the perimeter than it really was about rebounding. So our practice was focus much more on individual defense than it was on, you know, box outs or rebounding uh, or what have you, bloodbath drills or, you know, yeah. anything like that, right? Yeah. And the second time we played them, you know, we beat them by four at our place, you know, and and grew a lot from that understanding. But I think, you know, Nate Sanderson 10 years ago wouldn't have made that connection. Even if I would have watched it on huddle and said 16 times, I would have been so angry that we gave up those offensive rebounds. I wouldn't have recognized what the real cause was and, or had that inform what we're actually going to practice based on what happened in the game. Mm-hmm. Yet, uh, one of the things I really emphasize, and I tell coaches, um, is the, the kids' brains are different today than, than our brains. Uh, we, try to, we try to make our corrections, and I got this from uh, Patino. Uh, we try to make our corrections in seven seconds or less, and, and then go, you know. Uh, we're doing a shooting drill and, and I see this or that and I, I'm not like, I was like, blow the whistle. And I've already pre-thought out in my mind to try and get this, you know, I try to take an extra 10 seconds. I'll let them do it wrong for another 10 seconds so I can say exactly what I want to say in five to seven seconds so that we can get back to shooting instead of taking one or two minutes to go through and try to explain this and this and this and, and narrow that, that verbiage down because, like you said, they only get better by doing it. And, and I think that's really important for coaches. And I tell them, you know, especially like youth coaches, um, the kids, if, if you go into a five minute soliloquy on two ball dribbling, you've lost them. 
They, they, they are staring at the ceiling. They're counting the lights, and you, you've lost them. And then it's going to take you a while to get them back. So you've, you've lost 10 minutes probably because they didn't listen to you for the last five minutes or four minutes and 50 seconds. And then it's going to take them another four, four or five minutes to get it figured out again. Uh, is, is that kind of the way you see things as well, Coach? Yeah, for sure. When it comes to feedback, you know, that's probably one of the most difficult things for coaches uh, and probably teachers as well is that we, you know, like I said earlier, we walk into one of our open gyms and we've got 18 different shooting forms and you'd like to grab every kid and say, look, you need to you know, move your feet here and lift here and follow through there. And you can't, you know, there isn't time for that. Right. And so, you know, Doug Lamoff has a great uh, line in his new book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, where he says you can't catch five rabbits. You know, you can only catch one at a time. And I think our feedback systems in practice have come back to exactly that. I, we can emphasize one thing. You know, so the other day we were doing just a Nash shooting drill, right, which is just you start arms length away from the basket, you make two in a row, you take a small step back, you miss two in a row, you take a step forward, and you go for two minutes. And we give them one thing as a group to emphasize. You know, the first time we did it, we just wanted them to get their follow-through high and hold it. So that was it, right? And everything else, their feet are terrible. They're, you know, they're off balance. They've got these weird mechanics. But let's start with that, you know. And then the yeah. second time we did it, we said, okay, this time, again, going back to, are you shooting this in a way that you would get to shoot it in a game? Because it was slow and it was methodical. Oh, no, coach, we never get this off in a game, right? So we got to be quicker. So the second point of emphasis was knees bent, hands up, and when it hits your fingers, you're going right into your shooting motion, and that's it, right? And so, but that takes so much discipline as a coach because there's so many other things that you want to address, mm-hmm. but you just have to constantly ask yourself, if I could only have them improve one thing in the next three minutes, what would that thing be? And as you said, how can I communicate that as succinctly as possible? And I remember when I was an assistant at North Lynn, you know, Coach Wheatley would, would kind of explain, you know, two, three, four points of emphasis when he would stop something, and then he would say, Coach, you got anything to add? And in my mind, I would just think there's no words left. So, yeah. nope, I'm good. <laughs> you know, and, and that was better for everybody. Even if I had great things to say, it wouldn't matter at that point. You know, the most important thing was getting them back into the action. So I didn't say anything, you know, and mm-hmm. that didn't always feel great for me. But, <laughs> yeah. but it was definitely what was best for our kids. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into this. Uh, emotional intelligence and developing your players – emotional intelligence and, and building those relationships. What are some things that you do with your kids to to develop your own emotional intelligence so that you can then communicate and relate with your players at a higher level? And you, you've thrown out some of that stuff with the with the color uh, the talent code and, and Doug Lamov, which is some really good stuff there. What are some other things that, that you're doing there, Nate? Well, probably the most impactful thing that we started doing about seven years ago is what we call Mental Health Wednesdays. So once we get past Thanksgiving, every Wednesday practice for the rest of the year, we take about 45 minutes in the classroom and we do something, (laughs) whether it's related to our identity as a team, our culture, one of our values, our mistake response, it might be confidence, it might be how we interact with each other, whatever. There's... I ask myself on Sunday, you know, and I talk to our captains on Saturday mornings, what does our team need this week? You know, again, same type of question. If we could only address one thing this week, what should we do? And so, you know, we just start building out kind of this one week at a time, these mental health days. Um, and over the course of time, you know, 
I, when I interviewed for this job at Mount Vernon, I reached out to a bunch of my former players and I asked them, you know, what was it like to play for me? What did you get out of your basketball experience that's kind of stayed with you, you know, in the rest of life, your life, right? And almost every kid since we started doing those mental health days said the mental health Wednesdays, you know, have affected me and what I do at my job now or as a college student or whatever more than anything else. So that was pretty high praise, you know, that, that we were doing stuff that was really making a difference in their lives, right? So what what does a mental health day look like? So an example might be, um, again, at North Lane, Coach Weedley let me do these. Uh, as we went through the season. So one of our values that the kids chose early in the year was they wanted the experience to be fun. Well, I'd read or heard um, Steve Kerr talk about, you know, his, he's got four core values with Golden State, and joy is one of them. And he had a conversation with his team about, you know, what what makes it enjoyable to be us or to play the way that we do. And so we kind of just structured our classroom conversation around that same idea. How do we have fun around here? You know, and I sort of set the stage by saying teenagers have fun in lots of ways, right? Like they go and hang out and they do these things on the weekends and, you know, they're hanging out with their friends. But that's different than being part of a basketball team. So how do we have fun around here? You know, and I showed the video. uh, I kind of put together some snippets from YouTube of the way Golden State plays and some of their, you know, practical jokes they play in each other. Like, and use that as kind of our example. I told the story of Steeker and Joy and I said, here's what it looks like for Golden State. So they watched it, and they're in small groups of, you know, about five kids each or so. So we asked them to pull out the things that looked like joy from Golden State. So that was kind of our artifacts that they would examine. And then I said, okay, what does it look like for us? What is it makes it most fun to be us and to play the way we do and to be together? And so we just, you know, put those things up on the board. And, again, it's just a conversation to create awareness, right? If, if fun is going to be the thing that we want to experience, we can just write it on a wristband or we can put it on a hashtag or we can write an email about it to the parents. Mm-hmm. But like if we can't recognize it or build it for each other, and that's probably one of the biggest things that we really talk a lot about is, you know, how do we, we say this is important. How do we do this for each other? So, um, you know, another example from uh, last week, we had kind of mini camp at, at Mount Vernon. And so we had spent the majority of the time just sort of talking about what do we want the identity of the program to be and what do we want their experience in year one to be like. You know, they were 1-20 in 20 last year. There's a lot of work to be done in terms of getting us better at basketball. But what would make it worthwhile to show up every day, regardless of what the scoreboard says about our team? And so, you know, they talked about, like, wanting to give effort and wanting to be positive and, you know, wanting to get along and that sort of thing. So the last day, and this would be, again, a typical mental health kind of day for us, we pulled the seniors out of the room, and we said, and I took the seniors, and my assistants took everybody else. And so the everybody else group talked about, okay, we've been through this idea. We've we've defined kind of our values. It's going to be gratitude, effort, and love. We've talked about what we want the experience to be like. We want to come to a place where we look forward to being there every day. That's kind of how they described it. So what can the seniors do for the team this year that would help us to have this experience? And are there things that we really don't want seniors to do that would prevent us from, as a team, having this experience? So they had that conversation in the classroom. I took the seniors into the cafeteria and basically kind of gave them the same speech with one exception, and that is it's different when you're a senior because it it just feels different. It hits different. You know, it's your last time, right? And so... You know, I said, my goal for you is that you would look back and at the end of the year, whenever it ends, you'd say, I don't want this to be over. 
Yep. Like if we could get you to that point where you miss it, that would be a huge accomplishment for us, right? And and that's obviously the kind of impact that we hope our program would have. So so then asking them, like, because again, as a senior, you want to be respected, you want to be seen as a leader, you know, you want people to acknowledge that you've been around for a while, you know, and that sort of thing. So we ask the same two questions. What can your teammates do to help you have the best senior experience possible? And are there things that you don't want them to do? One or two things, don't do this, right? That would keep us from having that experience in our last year. Then we brought them all back together and they shared their list. Mm -hmm. And on the list, they were asked to come back, you know, again, boil it down to one or two things. Because as coaches, when we do like one-on-one conversations with players during the season, we capture all this data, right? We keep everything in Google Sheets and Google Docs. So we can come back, and when I'm meeting one-on-one with one of our seniors on December 11th, I can say, all right, you know, you said that, or the team said, they want you to be positive, and they don't want you to, to give up, you know, or to, to blame other people or whatever when things don't go right. Yeah. How do you think you're doing with that? You know, and so we keep calling them kind of back to that, right? Um, so that, that's another example of, you know, just the kind of activity that we would do where, you know, I think if you wanted a, a general blueprint, it's just what is an obstacle or a challenge that our team either is facing or is likely to face if I can anticipate any of those things coming. And then we talk about it. Like what's the challenge? What makes it hard? What does it feel like when things go well or they don't go well? You know, what can we do for each other in that situation? Or if we know we're going to play a really good team coming up, you know, look, we know this is going to be a challenge. Here's what's going to be hard about it. Like when we played the number one team in the state last year at Northland in, in January, we said, here's all the things that make it challenging to play in the Coconut Valley, right? Mm-hmm. And then we put on the list, what is it that makes it special to be us? What can they not take away from who we are? You know, how we react and how we celebrate each other, how we pick each other up, you know, like, again, we're helping them to refine both an understanding of who we want to be, but more importantly, how do we get to that point? What do we do for each other that helps us to develop, you know, that identity and that unique experience? Mm-hmm. Coach, it sounds like to me, and I, and I love all of this, like I'm cramping up from writing all this stuff right now. Right now. So um, it sounds like to me that you are uh, really intentional about building the culture that fits that team that year. And I'm, and I'm sure as in your seven, eight years at Maquoketa, and your your seven years, or, and excuse me if I'm off on the numbers with uh, with uh, sp- uh, uh, now I'm losing track of my stuff here uh, with Springfield uh, uh, Springville. Uh, there's 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 some common themes with within there, but you're giving each team and each player the opportunity to build it uniquely for that group of people is that ultimately kind of if you if you were to to narrow it down to that is that what you're looking to do on a on a daily and yearly basis yeah i think that's a good way to describe it you know um we just had a conversation with uh jerry lynch who works with the warriors and and quinn snyder out of the jazz and a whole bunch of other high level coaches and you know we're talking about this very same thing and jerry said you know what you have to understand is that Typically, the identity of a program, so when Steve Kerr says the Warriors are going to be about you know, compassion, competitiveness, enjoyment, and I can't remember what his other one is, mindfulness, he said those are really the best descriptions of Steve Kerr. Like, that's Steve understanding who he is and how that's going to then be breathed into the life of the Golden State Warriors. 
So I think, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, there's part of that that isn't going to change because it's who we are. And that can't be taken from anybody else. I can't look at Coach K's five values and say, oh, I want, I want that. You know, or mm-hmm. Dean Smith always said, you know, play hard, play smart, play together. And that's on T-shirts across the country. But that's really a, a reflection of who Dean Smith is as much as anything else. But I think what you're talking about is kind of, okay, if that's the identity or the DNA, it might look different from team to team, you know, mm-hmm. and, and one of the analogies that we use is, is I don't have a lot of hair left here, but <laughs> what I did, you know, I, I, my DNA made my hair red, right? And so I might wear it a different way. You know, I might wear it a little bit longer or cut it short or cut it off completely. So the, the way that it manifests might be different, but the DNA is still the same. And mm-hmm. I think when you look at year to year, that's a really good kind of analogy for that is, we're never going to stray too far from gratitude, effort, and love at Mount Vernon. You know, we might yeah. use different words. Maybe we'll have a different hashtag. I don't know. But that's who I am, you know, and that's really geared toward what we're going to do in just about everything. But it might look different depending on the team and your leaders on that team and, and you know, what they want to do with it in terms of what's gratitude mean to you. Well, maybe it, to them it means, you know, thanking the officials after every game. Oh, we've never had a team do that before. So that would be awesome, you know. So, Will Ray would say that, you know, a lot of times when a team starts to come up with something new, a new ritual, a new tradition, a lot of times it gets passed on, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, it, and it, it's done so in a way where the next group of seniors sort of feel like, gosh, we're the caretakers of something that's been created for us. What are we going to add to that to hand to next year's seniors? You know, and that's when things can really get special in your program. Yeah. Do you think... Uh, a common mistake that is made by coaches is this cultural setup worked really well for for this group. Uh, therefore, we're just going to roll it back and do the same thing next year. And uh, it should work because we're we're only you know it's it's essentially the same group. Or it, like I said, it worked really well this year. Instead of rebuilding that. Uh, thing and kind of starting from scratch again so that it truly fits that group. Yeah, I think there's benefit in that having that conversation every year. You know, mm-hmm. you asked me earlier would I have done anything differently at Lindmar, and I think that's one thing that I, I did take for granted because we brought everyone back from year two to year three. We had maybe one of the strongest cultural experiences that I've ever had anywhere in year two at Lindmar, uh-huh. and I just thought that that would carry over. Uh-huh. Um but the dynamics of that, that year three team were totally different and the expectations were different. Um, we had more kids out. We didn't get to start more kids. You know, there's, there's a lot of factors that were different. Yeah. And so I think there is a lot of merit to, again, for us, we're probably not going to alter what those, those core three core values are. I mean, that's the foundation, mm-hmm. but again, working backwards from anticipated areas of drama or conflict or obstacles or challenges or, What's going to be harder for this team? Maybe, you know, I think one of the challenges that coaches face a lot of times is is having a young team, you know, where either they don't have seniors or they have one or two seniors, but they're going to play a lot of freshmen or sophomores. That can be tough, right? Yeah. And especially if they're going to play over upperclassmen. So yes. knowing that coming into a season, and the coach typically is going to know that two years in advance, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, we would try to start working toward an understanding that, listen, if we, you know, next year have, a freshman, and we just kind of use hypothetical. Like JP Nurbin, the guy that I work for at Drive On Challenge, is really good about um, writing playing time scenarios 
before they're needed, right? So in your preseason or sometimes in your summer camp, you know, we'll take four scenarios here, okay? How should we handle, if you're the coaches, we put kids in groups of three or four, we write up a scenario. We're up by 35, you know, with seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Who should play, right? And so they start to talk it over and debate in their own groups about, well, should it be the youngest players? Should the JV kids that already played a full game play? When do you pull the starters? And surprisingly to them, they come up with different answers, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, depending on how you think about it. It's really good activity to give them some context to start thinking about, gosh, there's not a lot of easy answers here. Yeah. You know, and we'll do that with, if we start the season with 13 varsity shirts and we know we can fill 15 and we'll ask them, when would you bring somebody up and why? You know, again, we might have in our mind an idea that there's a couple of kids we think might be able to make it by the end of the year. But when they come up with some criteria and say, you know, coach, obviously they got to be good enough to practice with us. Or they say, this is one of the biggest takeaways that we've ever had in this conversation is we don't want to bring anybody up that's going to disrupt our chemistry. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, again, then they just work backwards and say, if they're not going to work hard and they, they're not going to be a good teammate, love and effort, right? They're not going to appreciate the opportunity as gratitude, then I don't think they should come up. And I, and I would tell them I agree with that. So that sets the standard for everybody that if you want a promotion, you got to get those three things right before what you do with a basketball matters. And it came from the kids. So again, working backwards from kind of anticipated obstacles, I think is a great way to structure some of those conversations to give it a different flavor year in and year out. Let's finish with this, Coach. If if it's uh, if it's good with you here, you, you kind of dove into roles and and developing roles and and playing time and and how to establish that. Um, and you touched on something that that I I I struggled with early in my career, which is uh, underclassmen playing ahead of upperclassmen. And my old athletic director at Scott. Uh, Catholic uh, Mike McMahon told me, you know, that's that's the hardest scenario that any coach faces with when you have a freshman or a sophomore taking playing time, especially significant playing time away from a senior. Um, how do you guys, and you kind of touched on it a little bit here, what are some other things that you do uh, to help minimize? Now, you're never probably going to get rid of those issues of, of playing time Unless you're unless you're really really successful, it's hard to go. Hey, we played Susie Smith ahead of Becky Hansen, and we finished twenty five and zero, and we won the state championship. Well, it's hard for anybody to come back and argue that that wasn't the right decision. You know what I mean? But that doesn't happen. Very, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, so so how do we uh, work in a in a proactive uh, manner to? to try and minimize the, the issues that we may have when dealing with playing time and roles and things like that. I've, I've had my activities. Some of them have worked good. Some of them have not worked as well. So, and, and I think that's obviously one of the big, biggest questions that coaches face is dividing up that playing time and, and who's going to get what and, and, and all those type of scenarios. So uh, you kind of delved into it a little bit there. What are some other things that maybe you've done to, to kind of help with that? Yeah, so a couple things. I think, first of all, communication is the most important thing, um, and that's particularly between player and coach. So if a player doesn't know where they stand, um, Bruce Berry talks about in one of his books, uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, um, that sometimes the misery of the unknown can be worse than the misery of the known. Yep. 
And I think that, you know, when players come into a game and they, mom thinks they should play and hey, you tell them they should play and their friends are telling them they should play and they don't and they expected to, you know, that's harder to handle than if you would have had the hard conversation and say, right now you're number nine and we're playing eight. Mm-hmm. Here's where you would get into the game. Injury, foul trouble, you know, somebody's not playing well, you'd be next in line. And just being honest, you know, with where they're at. Um, I think, you know, we could talk about playing time for hours here, but one of the things that's hard, I think, for players and for parents in particular is that as coaches, I think we perpetuate the myth that playing time is under your control. You know, there's a lot of times we'll say, gosh, if you want to play, then you just got to get better. Well, there's some truth to that. But when I look at my roster, you know, an individual player only controls one fifteenth of that equation because it's always compared to everybody else. Yep. So, you know, J.P. Nervin might play for me and work his tail off, you know, and get better from his freshman year to his senior year. But if I've got four Division One athletes, you know, and a really good player in front of him, if he doesn't pass them, he doesn't play as much as they do, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. Right? And so I think in some ways we just we set ourselves up for failure because we don't necessarily understand it. And here's, here's another analogy that we use for this. Like in the classroom, you know, it used to be 100 years ago, that everything was graded on the curve. There's yeah. five A's, there's five B's, there's 10 C's, there's five B's, whatever. It's not the way anymore, right? Yep. Now in the classroom, as long as you reach the 90% standard, you get an A. Yep. It doesn't matter if there's 18 A's, 20 A's, or one A. Mm-hmm. But in sports, it's different, right? Because there are only five starting spots in basketball. You're probably only going to play two, three, maybe four off the bench, you know, consistently. And so everything, rather than being relative to a numeric standard or a quote-unquote objective standard, it's all compared to who else is in your gym, yep. you know? And so, like, we asked our kids one year at Linmar, we said, you know, listen, you guys might not agree with this or not, but maybe the number one thing, you know, in terms of what affects your playing time is who got together with who, when they had kids, and where they decided to live. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And I said, well, think about this. Kia Stokes played at Linmar, okay? Kia was a Gatorade Player of the Year in Iowa. She went on to play at UConn for four years and was drafted into WNBA. I said, if Kia Stokes would have been born five years later, would that affect anyone's playing time in this room? Uh, yeah, she would play for us. That's right. At the expense of somebody else who may have worked really hard and you know loved basketball and do all the things we asked, but because she would be on our team, it would affect people's minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Do you control that? Then no control over that. You know what I mean? So... I think sometimes even just broadening that perspective for parents or for players can be useful because then you start to work backwards and then you say, okay, so what can you do as an individual player? Well, if you become the best player you can be, then you give yourself the best chance to play or to compete with your teammates. And it also, it either forces them to get better, which means that we get better or you're better than them. And so you play more than them and that makes us better. Right? So so ultimately, it comes back to the same idea. You got to get, you know, that player's got to get become as good as she can as she can. Now, here's the other piece of that. Then going back to what I said about communication, is like probably the best thing that we've done. Um, I think in terms of just building our culture and communicating through playing time and role issues, is we just have a consistent series of one-on-one meetings with our players throughout the year. Yep. And every meeting has a little bit different agenda. You know, the first one will kind of talk about their goals and what do they trying to, you know, compete for in terms of a role. The second one, they'll talk about their role. What do they like about it? What's hard about it? You know, are they disappointed? Like, we just want to surface all that stuff 
so that we can give them feedback and say, listen, you know, right now, like I had this conversation with as an assistant coach at, at Northland last year, we had three players competing for one starting spot. And each of those three players were really different. One was a long defending, you know, rebounding player that we could play in three spots defensively. Another one shot 48% from three, but not real athletic and not a good defender. Mm-hmm. And the other player was a solid kid that didn't hurt you, but really didn't have a plus, you know, at either yep. end. Yep. So some of that contextually is going to depend on the game. But I pulled the defender aside after a practice one day and I said, Lou, I said, do you want to know what the coaches are saying when it comes to whether or not, like what your role is going to be? And she's like, yeah. I said, okay. And I kind of looked around like it was a secret. Like, I'm not sure I'm supposed to be sharing this with you. And I said, here's the deal. Like, here's all the things that we see that you do well. Here's the thing that I know will get you off the court. Coach Wheatley will see this happen and he will pull you. And that is when things don't go your way, sometimes you kind of wilt like a flower. <laughs> mm-hmm. You lose your energy, you lose your enthusiasm, mm-hmm. you get frustrated, you don't get back on defense. I said, as soon as he sees that, I, don't, I know he's going to pull you. Well, I don't know if that's ever been shared with her before, yeah. right? And so now she understood, here's what gets you on the floor, and this is what gets you off the floor. Yeah. And I had that conversation with all three of those kids sort of repeatedly during the year. Do you want to know what we're saying you know, in the coach's room. And they're always like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so even though that feedback sometimes is hard for them to hear, like the shooter, you know, it's like, look, if you can't rebound on the backside of our zone, it's really hard to play you. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't have to be great. You don't have to get a million deflections, but if people are going to run by you on the weak side and we give up second chance points, it just, it, it just puts us to such a disadvantage. So mm-hmm. that's what she focused on. Again, we can't catch five rabbits, but here's the one thing you could do one thing right so just having those conversations consistently i think throughout the year and you know along with that is kind of recognizing areas where they are contributing as a teammate as a leader you know the the role that we talk about is not just what they do with a ball or offense or defense it's also i see you as you know you're kind of the spirit of this team or you're our cheerleader you're the team mom or you're the person i come to and you know i can't figure out how to understand these group of kids because I know you're friends with all of them. You can help me, you know, like trying to add value and recognize value that isn't related to what they can do with the basketball. You know, it helps to honor their contribution to the team. And I think I get everybody wants to play. That's why they're out for basketball. Absolutely. But by giving that consistent feedback um, and finding roles that aren't related to playing time that are still valuable and make us better, I think are at least good approaches. There's no, as you said, there's no magic bullet that's going to just solve the playing time problem. But um, I think those are approaches that have that have worked well for us. Well, and it kind of goes back to also um, what we talked about with you know being able to look at yourself in the mirror, and and if you have open and honest conversations, and you've communicated to the to the absolute best of your ability to tell a kid this is your role, this is what you need to 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 give yourself the best opportunity to have a, a chance to play. Um, and you, you, you have blowback from a parent or uh, a, a player and they get frustrated or whatever it may be. You, you, you just say, Hey, look, I could not have put this to you any plainer than, than what I did. And I gave you, here's the one or two things that you need to do. And I think that is uh, the, more than anything else, I, I think that's where you can look at yourself and go, 
I've I've done my job. I've communicated this to you. You you said you've understand it. I think one of the things that I I can't remember who said this, but you have the player repeat back to you what you've told them because we kind of talked about the dinner table. You have that conversation with that player at the end of practice, let's say, and then they get in the car, and in that in that fifteen minutes between practice and sitting at the dinner table, a lot of that stuff can be lost in translation. And and that's one thing that I've done the uh, you know the last couple of years is is okay. What did we talk about here today? Where are you at? And if there's any miscommunication, then you then you clean that up right away before they even leave. Say no, no, no. This is what I meant. This is and maybe I didn't explain it to you right the first time, but but here is what I'm talking about here. And and one of the things that I talk about with my players when it comes to roles is to know, accept, embrace, and excel at your role. And I think. Your job, your responsibility as your, as a coach is that you explain to those players what their role is and that they are crystal clear as what your vision of their role is for this team, for this season, at this point in time. Then it's up to them to accept, embrace, and excel at that role. And and that's a couple of things that, that, that I've done that, that I feel like has, has helped. Uh, you're, you're never going to get it perfect, like you said. Everybody wants to play. Everybody... Um, wants to have their kid out there, you're never going to make everybody happy, but at least you can look at it and say, hey, I've done everything that I can do to make this situation work. Yeah, can, can I add a couple things to that, too? You bet. You know, one thing one thing that we've done over the years um, is kind of, we call this sort of the breakfast club meeting, so mm-hmm. we have a, a pride scrimmage to start our season, typically as an exhibition game, usually on the second or third Saturday, or, you know, sometime in that second or third week, so the morning, if it's on a Saturday of that game, I'm going to bring in breakfast and I bring all the varsity kids in. And I write up on the board, we call this the ladder talk. Here's who's starting tonight. Here's how the rotation is likely to go. And I go player by player. This is their role, like where we're at today. So when I talk about that, I want everybody to understand everybody else's job or at least to be able to see kind of how the puzzle pieces fit together. But I also talk about what's hard about that job. So I'll give you a couple of examples. When we were at Springville, you know, we had that really good class come through. As the supporting cast of our two best players, you know, got better over time. But initially, there was a year there where if our shooting guard and our post player didn't combine for 35 or 40 points, we were not going to beat a good team. Mm -hmm. So when we did the ladder talk, we would say, listen, everybody looks at Mick and Riley and they say, oh, they get to shoot it whenever they want. They get to play all the time. I bet that's great. I'd, I'd love to have that role, you know, and who wouldn't? Yeah. But do you also want the pressure to know that if you don't get 18 tonight, we probably can't beat these five teams. Like you don't have to carry that same pressure, you know, when you're coming off the bench or when you're the fifth starter or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about our designated shooter, you know, and typically if, if we're good enough, we'll have a kid that'll have kind of the unlimited green light. You know, if you yep. can catch it in a range and see the rim, you better shoot it. And everybody looks at that and says, oh, I wish I had the NASCAR green lights. You know, I touched it, coach wants me to shoot it. But here's the deal. Like, are you going to be able to maintain your confidence that if you miss five threes in the first half and we find you wide open in the left corner in the second half on the first possession and you go to load it up and the crowd starts to groan, uh, you know, because you've missed every other one before that. (laughs) Can you handle that? Can you carry that? Because your job is still to shoot it even if you're not making it, yeah. right? And, yep. and nobody thinks about that, right? Yep. So, you know, and as we work our way down, like, you know, we had a kid last year, again, the, the, the kid that was solid for us, 
there were times where she would she would come in and finish games because she, you know, she wasn't a scorer, but she was all right defensively and she didn't turn the ball over, right? And mm-hmm. so we'd be up by six or eight. She played the last three and a half minutes in that fifth spot and we'd end up winning the game by 12 or 14. And it and it was like she was invisible. Nobody is going to, you know, the newspaper's not coming up to interview Ella Reese about how she came in the game and didn't turn it over. But she's a big reason why that lead went from eight to 14 down the stretch because she didn't turn it over, right? Absolutely. So, how how often as a coach, and I was really cognizant of this as an assistant, you know, of texting those kids or grabbing them after the game and saying, hey, I just want you to know this is what I saw tonight. You know, you're in this many possessions, you didn't turn it over, you chased down this long rebound, you had this deflection, if somebody else came up with the steal, nobody's going to recognize it, but if you didn't do your job, you know, Lou doesn't get the steal on this side of the floor over here. I don't know if you're going to hear that at home. I don't know if you're going to hear that from Coach Wheatley but I want to make sure that you know that we saw it, you know? And I started making that a habit at Northland after just about every varsity game. I would try to grab kids and just say, listen, here's what I saw you do well tonight. Related to, you know, their role. And one other thing I'll add to that is that you mentioned having the player articulate the role back to you. We've even taken that up a notch. And so in our one-on-ones, oftentimes, sometime in December, we'll do two-on-ones. So I'll have two players and a coach. And I will ask them to articulate their role as a player and as a teammate to each other. So they're explaining to their teammate, not just to me, you know, so it's not trying to come up with what coach wants, but now I'm listening to see if they got it right, you know, and this is maybe two weeks after I've had that conversation with them and we're really strategic about who we pair up. So for example, a couple of years ago, again, at Linmar, um, we paired Emma Case Bowles, who was a junior that her sophomore year, she was a swing kid. So she, you know, played four or five quarters, three quarters at JV, maybe one or two turns at the varsity level, right? Yep, well, yep. we made her practice, not full practices, but JV and varsity would be together. So she'd be with the JV group for a while, and then she'd come and practice with the varsity group for a while. Her minutes would change night in and night out. She wasn't sure how many quarters she was going to get in where. It's hard, you yep. know, it's a hard position to be in, but we felt like it was what was best for her development. Well, as a junior, she'd worked her way into the varsity rotation. The sophomore, then that was behind her, Kaylin Ogleton, was now that swing kid. So what we did is, in our two-on-one, Emma was explaining what her job is this year as a junior. Kaylin was explaining her role as a sophomore. But now Emma could really empathize with Kaylin about what's difficult about that role. And I think even giving kids the opportunity and saying, you know, one, what do you like about this role? Like, if it's not the role you want, what, what do you still enjoy about it? And two, what's hard for you? What's challenging for you in trying to do this role for our team? And as Kalen says, oh, I just don't know always when I'm going to play and blah, blah, blah. You know, Emma says, well, here's something that I learned uh, in that role last year. She's like, I didn't get this really until the end of the year. But I think I had more friends last year than I do this year because I got to be part of two different teams. Mm, and when yeah. she said that, it was like, I never would have come up with that, <laughs> you yeah. know. For Kaylin, it was like a light bulb went on. It's like, wow, I do get to know a lot of different people that most of my other teammates on either one of those teams don't get to know in the same way. So so as much as we can get players empathizing and saying, I've been in those shoes, I know what it feels like, here's how I got through it, or here's what I got out of it, the better. And when players can do that for each other, they're much more likely to be receptive. Or, you know, if Kaylin is struggling down the road, and I see that, you know, January and she's still frustrated about something, I might have Emma reach out to her and just check in with her. You guys already talked about this once. Just go check in and see how things are going. And Kaylin's much more likely to open up to Emma 
And Emma is much more equipped to be able to speak into that role because that's where she was the year before. So the more of those kind of connections that you can facilitate as a coach, uh, the more powerful, you know, those conversations can be for the player. Absolutely. Coach Sanderson, awesome conversation this morning. I mean, I've got, I've got so much stuff written about down just listening to this the first time and, and, and talking with you here. I can't wait to re-listen to it and, and write down even more information. So, Terrific, terrific stuff. Thanks so much for coming on this morning. Well, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's been it's been great, and I know coaches are going to get so much out. Of, we're we're pushing an hour forty minutes here, but this is this is it's felt like forty minutes instead of an hour and forty minutes. So, <laughs> uh, if you could hold the line real quick, I got to wrap up a couple things here. Um, but uh, thanks so much for coming on today. All right, we'll do. All right, uh, again, Nate Sanderson, the new. Girls basketball coach at Mount Vernon High School in Mount Vernon, Iowa. He's going to get that thing turned around in a hurry. You can tell, right? You just in, in this amount of time, you, the coaches really got it ready to roll here. Uh, so again, uh, we want to thank our founding sponsor, Cosac Chiropractic. If you're in need of chiropractic services, don't hesitate to call Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi at 402-964-0300. A pen and a napkin university. It's starting Monday, July the 5th. It's going to be a great exercise here. Uh, we're going to have these type of conversations. We're going to do some some groupthink and interactive stuff. So I encourage you to sign up for a pen and a napkin university. Our first topic is is uh, personal growth and development. Our very first uh, our, that's our first course. Our first topic is going to be communication with players, and we've just spent twenty minutes or so talking about that right here, right now with Coach Sanderson. So terrific stuff there. Follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. Download, rate, review the pod on iTunes or SoundCloud. And of course, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Coaches, let's be sure to hone our craft one day at a time.